Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We now have a Bloomberg exclusive with Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro uh, speaking with uh, Mr. Schatzker in Caracas. The focus is on normalizing relations with the U.S., but this does fit into the broader theme that we've been talking about all week of the great American reset of international relations as President Biden took a tour uh, of Europe. The idea here is that Maduro would like to see <laughs> relationships uh, normalized with the United States, some of the harsh sanctions lifted. Take a listen to what Maduro had to say. We always have to remember, Eric, that we faced four years of the Trump administration, which were four years of direct aggression, of cruel sanctions, very cruel, and of damage to the Venezuelan economy and society. The politics that Donald Trump installed and left his legacy against Venezuela are extremist politics, irrational, right? That caused a complete rupture between the United States and Venezuela. President Joe Biden has arrived, making a proposal to the world. His first speech on January 20th, he said that we don't have to demonize anybody in politics. I would say to President Joe Biden to stop from the White House, from the Department of State, the demonization of Venezuela, the demonization of the Bolivarian Revolution, the demonization of President Nicolas Maduro, and that hopefully we can find paths of reconciliation, of respect, paths of mutual benefit, and paths that allow us to normalize relations between the United States and Venezuela. Have you seen any signals that suggest Joe Biden has a different posture? especially as it concerns the Venezuela question. Do you want me to be sincere? Very sincere? There hasn't been a single positive sign. None. It's five months where, okay, they're settling into power. The only different thing, the only different thing that might be heard from some spokespeople of the White House and of the Department of State is that they agree with the political dialogue between Venezuelans, without intervention, to look for democratic political changes in the country. That's the only thing. They must abandon the demonization that they make of Venezuela, of our revolution, democratic, constitutional, pacific, and of President Nicolas Maduro, to create real foundations, objective, credible, verifiable, of a process of negotiation, to regularize the relations between the two countries in terms of win-win, which is what we aspire to since a long time ago. A win-win is possible, in your opinion? Absolutely. We've already shown that. Of course it's possible to win-win. They know it in the financial sector, the bondholders, with whom we had an impeccable relationship, and they know it's possible to invest in Venezuela and win-win, as long as this whole persecution and the sanctions aren't there. The oil sector knows it who has invested in Venezuela, and who still maintains investments in Venezuela, 
that we can advance much more. The cultural sector knows it. The social sector. The political sectors know it. Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker just returning from Caracas. He is here with us. I did not know that you could speak Spanish, Eric. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on the interview. I am curious, before we get into the substance, of what it was like in Caracas, given the uh, COVID pandemic and how hard that region has been hit, and given the exodus of residents as a result of some of the financial crisis uh, issues that this nation has been facing. Lisa, it shouldn't surprise anybody that Caracas and Venezuela as a country are a shadow of their former selves. Don't forget, Venezuela was South America's richest country. At one point in the 1990s, it used to produce three and a half million barrels a day of oil. Last year, that was down to 410,000, the lowest in about a century. And of course, that's visible on the streets of Caracas. The country doesn't have any money. First of all, uh, you could argue persuasively that it was mismanaged by the socialist nationalist government of Hugo Chavez and subsequently Nicolas Maduro. Uh, but there's also these U.S. sanctions in force. They don't allow Venezuela to sell any oil. They don't allow Venezuela access to debt capital markets. The country has no money. It's in default. It's bankrupt. The infrastructure is crumbling. All of this is visible to the naked eye. But I will point out that there is call them green shoots. Venezuela has relaxed some of its economic restrictions, and it is fascinating, candidly fascinating. I don't want to downplay the poverty, which is extreme, but to see these flickers of entrepreneurialism in a country that has been forced to loosen these strictures uh, to try and find some way out of its desperate economic situation. What, Eric, is the path forward? What is a realistic, in your conversations with him, a path forward to a loosening of sanctions, getting that oil back for the country? Let's not forget that the Trump administration was pursuing a policy of regime change. It was trying to drive Maduro out of office. And as far as the U.S. government was concerned, there were good reasons to do that. Um, drug trafficking, rigged elections, mm -hmm. corruption, all kinds of accusations and allegations for which there's much evidence against the Maduro regime. The mm -hmm. Biden administration has taken a different approach. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has talked about uh, free and fair elections. That's the path forward. That's what the negotiations are moving toward. The United States, what remains to be seen, clearly Maduro is extending something of an olive branch. He wants a deal. He wants talks. He wants the United States to sponsor, along with the Norwegians, uh, some kind of a dialogue with the opposition that moves the country forward such that these free and fair elections take place. People can, I guess, confidence can return to Venezuela. And ultimately, the government feels as though the situation is stable enough and fair enough that it is willing to relieve at least some of these sanctions. And if that happens, I'm not in the business of making predictions, but if Venezuela is allowed to start selling oil again on international markets, and if investors are allowed to bring money to the country mm -hmm. and pump it into sectors like petrochemicals, it might be quite amazing the kind of growth we would see in the Venezuelan economy because it has over the past eight years shrunk by, uh, it's hard to believe, 80%. Yeah. Wow. It's been shocking. Eric Schatzker, thank you so much uh, for going down there and doing this and joining us today on the heels of your trip. The Great Reflation 
turns into the great unwind. Jay Bryson, Wells Fargo chief economist, has been tracking the data. Unclear what the data actually says. Jay Bryson, based on the data, do we have any indication that, yes, this economic recovery is starting to stall out or give hints of having already reached its peak and poised for only disappointment going forward? Well, I don't know, Lisa, if I would say disappointment going forward. I mean, are we at peak growth right now? Yes, probably. You know, in the second quarter, you're looking at a growth rate that's probably going to be 10% annualized. That's clearly not sustainable. Right? And if you slow down in the second half of the year to what we think will be 6 7 maybe 8%, let's face it, that still is a very, very strong growth rate. So, again, peak growth right now, but you can't expect to stay at 10%. All right. Well, there's a question here about whether we can uh, infer anything from the labor market data that we've been getting, the idea that we got a disappointment in the initial jobless claims. We've gotten disappointments on the monthly jobs reports that we've gotten out of the federal government. Are we gleaning anything from that, or is it still too early to do anything with that information? You know, Lisa, I think it still is a a little bit too early to, to really make hard decisions about what's coming out of the labor market. Now, I mean, it's still being affected by concerns about COVID. If you look at surveys, when when people say, why aren't you working right now? Concerns about going back to the workplace are up there. You know, there's still these extended unemployment benefits, at least in some states, um, that may be keeping some people on the sidelines. So I think we really need to give it, unfortunately, you know, another few months to see when the smoke clears, to see how we're doing in um, the fall as people are actually coming back to the labor market at, at that point. So at this point, there's still, I think, a lot of noise, a lot of uh, things going on in the labor market that are, that are keeping a little bit maybe depressed. Are you at all concerned about a price wage spiral, Jay? I know it's something that economists fear normally, but as Lisa said, we've gone through a real paradigm shift. So Matt used the word spiral. No, I'm not really concerned about spiral. That's like, so, you know, when I think of wage price spirals, I think what we saw back in the 1970s. And and back then, what you had was a fair amount of people had wages that were indexed to inflation. So you had the 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 OPEC shocks that pushed up prices, then that fed into wages, automatically fed back into prices again and spiraled up. You don't have that same sort of thing today uh, in, in terms of that. I mean, I think what would be interesting or what we're keeping a close eye on is inflation expectations. If they really start to become unmoored here, people really do start to expect higher and higher inflation going forward, then that does become a little bit of concern. And I think the data is mixed there. When you look at market indicators of inflation expectations, since the Fed meeting, they've come down significantly. Um, you know, now, you know, the personal um, expectations, like what you capture in the University of Michigan, we'll see how that all plays out. But for me, that's the big key is what happens to inflation. You, you know, Jay, from uh, in your career, from Johns Hopkins to Georgetown to the University of Alabama, uh, you've been the entire time inside this kind of Reaganomics bubble, right? We've had this supply side economics narrative for the last 40 years, and that seems to have changed um, with this pandemic and with this um well, I guess the last administration uh, was was a big spender as well. But all of a sudden, modern monetary theory seems to have won the day. How difficult does that make your job? 
Well, you know, you, you guys have been using the word paradigm shift, you know, and, and so it's, it's clearly is is that. Where are we right now in terms of what's what's the closest um, um, analog that you could look at? I, you know, I think it would be the, the, the late, late 1960s, guns and butter. Um, and we did get some inflation out of that. Now, it was really the, the OPEC shocks um, of the 70s that really got inflation starting to head higher. So that's kind of where we are right now. And, and what I would say, though, is, is it's a political decision going forward. You know, are we going to get all this infrastructure spending? Are we going to get this American Families Plan passed or not? That still remains to be seen. You know, we still have a very, very split Congress. Um, and, and even with among the 50 uh, senators, Democratic senators, there's not unanimity there either. So it, it does make our job, the, the politics right now, I think is, is complicates uh, what we're trying to figure out um, going forward. How are you thinking within this big paradigm shift that we talk about, the models that we traditionally look at, a Phillips curve, let's say it, the way that we're measuring inflation, the basket of which we're measuring, are those tools still intact? Well, in terms of the you know the Phillips curve, I think that has been was put to rest pretty much during the last expansion. Mm-hmm. You know, we got down to an unemployment rate that was at three and a half percent. Traditional Phillips curves would have told you you would have had a lot more wage inflation than we did it. So that's kind of out the you know out the the window right now. Uh, so yes, we are in kind of uncharted territory right now. Not only with what's going on with the pandemic, but as, as well as this way the the economy is responding to that. So when we think about the future, when we're looking at our forecast, when there's always a confidence interval around that, unfortunately, that confidence interval right now is wider than what it always historically has been. What about the level of divergence? I'm thinking on a global basis, a lot of the guests yesterday were hinting that the Fed has now diverged from other global central banks and thinking about where we are, how further ahead we are. Are you seeing a divergence of the U.S. versus other central banks? Clearly, up until, say, Wednesday, there was a divergence. It seemed like other major central banks were leaning a little bit more towards uh, starting to remove some policy accommodation. You know, the Fed wasn't there yet. Now, I think what they hinted with the dot plot on Wednesday was, maybe we're getting a little bit closer to that than than what we thought. So I would say the Fed at this point is still lagging a little bit behind some of its its international counterparts. Um, But clearly there's been a a reaction function shift at the Fed. It seems like they have, have, uh, um, what they've elevated is is a maximum employment um, at the expense of inflation. But now that it may be starting to change a little bit as well. So the Fed is starting to catch up to some of those major central banks. We're speaking with Jay Bryson, a Wells Fargo chief economist. And Jay, every day on Thursday at 4.30 p.m., I take a look at the Fed balance sheet. It's when they release the latest outstandings. And yesterday, the balance sheet increased by the most going back three months. And it rose to the highest level ever of more than $8 trillion, crossing that line for the first time. They are talking about tapering, perhaps. And people are talking about tapering, but they are doing anything but. I mean, honestly, how much support is this giving to the economy at this point and how much support is this given to bond yields uh, with people getting increasingly sanguine that they will stay as low as they are? So, right. I mean, the Fed is taking down roughly half of the Treasury supply um, right now. Um, I don't have a you know point estimate for how much that's um, worth on the 10-year yield, but it, you know it's clearly bringing that, that yield down. You know, if the Fed tomorrow says we're going to start to taper, 
what do you think happens to the 10 year yield is going to snap higher. Uh, and I think they are very they're concerned about that. They look back at the taper tantrum back in 2013 when the yield on the 10 year snapped up 100 to 150 basis points over you know, a number of weeks. And I don't think they want to go back to that uh, yet. And so we do expect that you know, later this summer, maybe early fall, the Fed will start to hint about the tapering. And when they start to really do that, you will see yields start to move up. And I wouldn't expect them to start to really dial back their pace of purchases until late this year and probably more likely early next year. Jay Bryson, Wells Fargo Chief Economist, thank you so much. A lot of folks really have to assess uh, what happened on Wednesday and what could happen uh, going forward. Of course, all the big head honchos over at BlackRock, when they want to get a sense of what's happening in the market, of course, they turn uh, to Wei Lee, chief, global chief investment strategist over at the BlackRock Investment Institute. And I'm pleased to say uh, Wei joins us right now to talk a little bit more here, Wei, about this shift in tone that we got out of the Fed. And I'm wondering if this requires a meaningful shift in tone out of the markets. Well, we actually see what uh, um, the Fed announced uh, this week in line with its new policy framework. So this uh, bringing uh, forward the lift off as well as adjusting inflation expectations higher, especially for this year. We also see this adding to the credibility of, um, of its framework because everything that's happened so far, what they have put out is still in line with what we call the new nominal theme, which is that the rate policy uh, will be a lot slower in this cycle in comparison with previous cycles. So if you think about back in 2015, when we're looking at Fed rate high core PCE was just above 1.2%. And now we're talking about a lot higher levels and at the same time lift off not in not until 2023 20, uh, by Fed on estimate. So we still see their new policy framework very much uh, intact and that underpins our uh, pro-risk uh, view. So just to underscore what you may be saying here, is it just that you have not changed anything about your investment thesis post the Fed meeting that a lot of people thought was a pivotal shift? Well, I, I would say that uh, there are specific kind of uh, views around, for example, where the dollar could go from here on, uh, at least in the near term, and that has read across to emerging market sentiment, which we are reviewing very, very closely. And uh, more broadly, the, the, the view around curve uh, steepening uh, after uh, this this week's uh, announcement, have seen reversal of that. So, so, so there are under the surface nuances that we're working through, but the overall stay invested in market uh, pro-risk. That is intact because we still see, even though it came as a bit of a hawkish surprise, the, 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 the changes and the announcement in line with the uh, new policy framework that the Fed uh, embarked on. How are you thinking, though, about the rotation sort of back into growth out of value? How much of that was maybe just some recent underperformance that we have seen? How much of that is more fundamental, that long-term growth expectations might be lower than some of our early lofty projections? 
I would say, yes, very interesting indeed that we're seeing a bit of a rotation back into um, the, the, the growthy names that came a bit more uh, under pressure earlier on in the year. Um, in our view, for example, the typical growthy names, tech, there is always a place for technology in portfolio, especially when you look at it from a longer term perspective. If you think about some of the structural challenges that we got to tackle, aging demographics, the global green transition, technology will play a big role. Their earnings are good and they have continued to deliver. And we actually have been talking about kind of earlier year on the performance as interesting entry point to build that position. So the longer term pace for growthy type of names and especially technology in our view stays intact. But in the near term, we still see there being more to go in this restart uh, narrative. If you think about kind of the restart that, that started earlier this year in the U.S., now broadening out to uh, Europe uh, and also broadening out to Japan, I do see that yeah. there being more to go for the cyclical trades to go a bit longer. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the growth prospects in Europe. Uh, right now, we are getting headlines uh, from the Italian Prime Minister, uh, Mario Draghi, uh, saying the economic forecasts there uh, will be revised up significantly. He's also talking up uh, the need and his desire here for additional economic stimulus uh, here, uh, kind of on the same note that we've heard uh, from Draghi for quite some time. But we've seen better data starting to come out of Italy and in some of the other European nations here that I think would be encouraging, Way. Uh, indeed, what we have seen so far is that the momentum of restarts, the, the, the baton is getting passed on from the U.S. to the laggards, previous laggards, including Europe and, in our view, Japan. And uh, that very much underpinned um, our preference to potentially broaden out our previously very uh, kind of strong conviction in U.S. equities and consider some of the laggards, including Japan and including Europe that, that you, just, uh, you just spoke to. One thing I would say, though, is that the restart is very different from a typical recovery. So as we see this very strong incoming growth numbers, we have to take it with a pinch of salt as well in that we cannot extrapolate this momentum indefinitely. So we caution against extrapolating the very strong momentum that we're seeing right now, but we do see that the, the, the restart broadening out benefiting cyclical assets such as uh, Europe and Japan for that matter. Wei, before we let you go, just 20 seconds here, do you think that the dollar will continue to strengthen after five straight days, the greatest uh, strengthening streak going back to May 26, 2020. Well, we actually see dollar kind of range bound. The recent kind of strengthening uh, trend came off the back of uh, a period of weakening, right? So, so, so earlier at the beginning of the year, because of US exceptionalism, we see dollar strengthening and then we see that coming back and now it's rebounding back a little bit. We see it range bound, not breaking out of uh, the current uh, range and not particularly hurting risk sentiment. But in the near term, given how strong it's rebounded back, we definitely keep a close eye on risk market because of that. Weili of BlackRock, thank you so much for that. Right now, we are so lucky to have Congressman Sean Kasten, a Democrat from Illinois, joining us on the drumbeat to infrastructure, the drumbeat to cleaner energy. Congressman, I'd love to start with this idea that there seems to be more of a consensus forming on some sort of bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. What's your sense of the shift that's allowed a greater consensus and perhaps more optimism around something getting done? Um, you know, I hope you're right. We desperately need to upgrade our infrastructure. The, it, I don't think it's surprising. Every member of Congress would like to see infrastructure projects to their district. 
I think the challenge that we have in this moment is to make sure that we do not forget about the critical importance of climate infrastructure in this piece, because as long as the red state, blue state, red district, blue district divide tracks so closely to where people live and where land is, that means that this huge win-win of clean energy that is a wealth transfer from energy producers to energy consumers has a partisan tinge, and we just have to make sure not to let that quest for bipartisanship get in the way of doing what we have to do, both for the environment and for our wallets. Yeah, well, the partisan tinge, of course, uh, has been a huge roadblock uh, for a lot of efforts out there uh, to address some of these issues, uh, Congressman. Uh, you uh, have uh, three proposals out there, at least three, uh, that I'm aware of here uh, to address some of those uh, climate change issues. I'm wondering whether you can talk a little bit specifically about the one that's supposed to address some of the financial risk uh, that you see out there. Sure. Well, I was delighted we just passed on the floor uh, this week my, my Climate Change Financial Dis uh, Risk Disclosure Act which essentially just says that the SEC um, is obligated to require all companies on a mandatory and consistent basis to report both their contributions to global warming and their exposure. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, in 2010, the SEC developed voluntary disclosure, and last year the, the Trump-led CFTC said that those disclosures were insufficient, were not providing investors what they need. And so the idea is to get this out there to level the playing field. Um, again, that one we just passed on the floor this week and uh, we will send off to the Senate. The, the other proposals that we have are essentially follow from that, saying we need to understand the systemic risk that climate change poses to our financial system. Swiss Re has said that on the course we're on, we are looking at an 18% reduction in global GDP from climate change. That's the business as usual case. Even if we meet the Paris goals, it's a 4% reduction in global GDP. CFTC has more or less matched those predictions for the United States. And some of that is negative loss. You know, what happens to low-lying coastal areas and properties that are, that, are, that are there from hurricanes, from wildfires, et cetera? But a big part of it is transitional because everything, every clean energy technology we build lowers the cost of energy. Solar panels, electric vehicles, geothermal efficiency, it leaves more money in people's pockets. But that's really disruptive to certain regions of the country. And, you know, as I tell my colleagues, rising tides sometimes lift all boats. Tsunamis have a way of swamping some out. And so we're creating a tremendous amount of wealth, but where is it gonna be isolated in our economy from it? So these other bills are designed to say, let's have the Fed, let's have our prudential regulators understand where those systemic risks sit and then put appropriate guardrails to protect investors um, when those movements um, inevitably start to come as indeed they already are. Con Congressman Sean Kasten of Illinois, thank you so much for being with us. Too short, we'll get you on more next time. There's no better person to discuss travel than Brian Kelly. Of course, we know him as the points guy. I'm a huge fan on Instagram following you. And of course, some of the big headlines this morning that the EU sort of fully trying to reopen to U.S. visitors. But I guess the big question is, can I still afford a flight or are my flights now priced out of my price range to Europe? You know what, Taylor, the best deals this summer are to Europe. We're seeing $1,000 one-way business class fares to Europe, and it's also a great time to use those frequent flyer miles. So many of us have them, uh, we're hoarding them because we haven't traveled that much. So they're use them now, especially because you can cancel your frequent flyer mile tickets and get them all back and all your taxes and fees back, which is much better than getting a voucher 
if you pay for a ticket. Interesting. I mean, you mentioned business class there. Where are we in terms of the return of the business customer? We have heard that those are the big ticket items, but that is nowhere coming back from the corporate side. Is this all leisure still at this moment? It's mostly leisure travel, although every major CEO of an airline that I've talked to says that business travel is coming back much quicker than they anticipated. As we know, the big banks are going to be calling people back to the office, usually after Labor Day. Um, and business travel is going to come back in a different form. I know at my company, we're not going to be doing senseless meetings that we could do over Zoom, but we're going to have longer, more impactful team building meetings at resorts. So I think it's going to be it's going to come back a lot quicker than we thought, but it's going to look different. That Monday to Thursday grind might change a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting you bring that up. I was actually speaking uh, with the CEO of Marriott International yesterday, as well as the CEO of Trip.com, and they talked about this idea of sort of, I guess, hybrid-type travel, where you're going to see much more of a blend between that leisure uh, and business customer here. How does that sort of change at all, uh, I guess, the way that some of the airlines and the hotels uh, sort of price their offerings and, I guess, uh, sort of adjust their offerings to deal with those types of customers? Yeah, you know, they're first class planes are full these days. They're still, uh, you know, upgrading people into first class. You know, the business class total fares are down. I think we're going to see a return to profitability uh, or, or not stemming the losses this quarter for most of the airlines, but they're not those big ticket fares, the $10,000 business class fares to Shanghai, right? Yeah. So uh, definitely the airlines are looking for more ways to raise revenue. A key way they did that during the pandemic was selling billions of dollars worth of frequent flyer miles to the credit card companies. And what we're seeing is huge offers for consumers in the credit card market. You know, we're looking at 100,000 mile offers to get a single credit card. I think there's seven different cards offering that. So I think we're seeing a shift in the way they're accounting for the revenue, but making it up through co-brand partnerships is a key way to do that. And do you think we'll get back to a, a stage anytime soon where we will see uh, some of those offers uh, dangled a little bit more out there? I mean, I hear a lot about cost issues with a lot of these companies are obviously having to pay a little bit more for workers here. Uh, and there's this idea here that in order to protect their margins, that means they can't offer the same type of discounts that they did in the past. Absolutely. We're going to see more ancillary fees, even though the airlines did, you know, get rid of change fees over the pandemic. We've already seen them start to roll that back. Right. In May, most airlines now won't give you that free change if you book basic economy, which is what most leisure travelers are booking, that cheapest fare. Uh, we've also seen some bogus fees from hotels for service fees, cleaning fees. Uh, certainly in the car rental space, we're seeing exorbitant rates and fees. So travel prices are creeping up. You know, this summer is not the summer of $40 fares across the country like we saw a year ago. So, uh, yeah, I think the airlines are very smart at coming up with ways to, to bring in that ancillary revenue. Quickly here, Brian, where's the hot spot to go this summer? I mean, we're still looking domestic. Uh, Key West, Miami, Ooh. Hawaii is Ooh. through the roof. You know, so many people just want to travel. And even though Europe is opening, I'm excited to go next month. It's been really confusing to figure out what the rules are, EU rules versus individual country rules. Certain countries will release information on Facebook, and it's, you know, luckily at the points guy, we break this all down for our readers. But to the average consumer, it's still way too confusing to go abroad. So, uh, and we're seeing huge amounts of uh, capacity added to the Caribbean for Q3, mm. actually more than Q3 2019. So people are headed to the beach. We all um, need a break. <laughs> You and me both. The Points Guy, Brian Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.